is taken from Genesis 16, uh, Hagar and Ishmael. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my servant. Perhaps can, I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been in living, been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his, his wife, took her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and gave her to the husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You should name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility to all his brothers. She gave his name to the Lord. Uh, gave, sorry, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again, everybody. If you don't know me, my name's Anna. I'm the curate here. Um, let's pray, and then I'm going to speak to us a little bit about that passage we've just heard. Father God, thank you that you speak to us in so many different ways. And thank you that you speak to us through scripture. Pray that as we open the Bible together now, that we will encounter you afresh. Send your spirit to enliven my words and the thoughts of all our hearts. Amen. So if you um, were here last week, then you will know that we have just started a tiny mini sermon series looking at some of the names of God in the Bible. We looked at a few last September and the September before, so we're carrying on. Don't be deceived by the thing that said seven signs in the corner. That's about our next sermon series, but we were running out of steam to keep designing slides, so we're just going with this one. Um, and last week, when Paul was here, he was speaking to us about God as El Elyon, God Most High, or as Paul called it, God, God, Super God. Um, and this week, and that was from Genesis 14, which was right early on in Abraham's story. This week, we're a little bit further in Genesis 16, and we're looking at God as El Roy. El just means God. Roy comes from the Hebrew roe, which is about seeing, or about looking, or sometimes about shepherding. 
So we might translate El Roy as being the God who sees, and in particular, the God who sees me. But before we come on to think about El Roy in a bit more detail, I want us to take a bit of a closer look at that passage that Toby was just reading for us. If you've got a Bible with you, it's Genesis 16. If you want to have a quick look, you don't need to. Um, And in particular this morning, I want us to take a bit of a look at Hagar. Um, I don't know if you've come across Hagar before we read that passage today. Uh, I think quite often when we read Genesis and we read the story of Abraham, we treat Hagar as being a little bit sort of incidental to the story, um, a sideline character in many ways. We look at the role that she plays in Abraham's and Sarah's story. Abraham had had this great promise and Sarah had this great promise um, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I think quite often when we read it, we just treat Hagar as being sort of a means to that happening, part of the, part of the journey. Almost treated as if she's not a person in her own right, with her own story to tell and her own walk with God. And I think that is a mistake. And hopefully, if you don't now, in a few minutes you might agree. Um, so Hagar's story, or the bit that we know of it, begins with Sarai. Oh, actually, I've got a picture of Hagar, Dan. Can you show? This is my favorite picture of Hagar. It's a contemporary icon by um, a lady called Charlotte Gibson, who is a curate somewhere in Birmingham. You can buy it at that email address if you want one. And this is a picture of Hagar a little bit later on when she's had Ishmael, her son. You can't see it very clearly on the screen, but she's sort of giving him a piggyback. And Hagar, um, we meet as Sarai's slave woman. She's Egyptian, and so we presume that perhaps Abraham and Sarai picked her up when they were in Egypt in Genesis 12. And Sarai, we know from Genesis 11, was childless, unable to have children, or at least so it seemed. That's a traumatic and potentially devastating experience for anyone, but particularly in this time, a really, really hard thing. And in fact, apart from finding out that she was married to Abraham, Sarai, the, only th- the first thing we learn about her is that she is childless, that that's become a defining part of her identity, which is really sad, isn't it? But as we know, God had given to Abraham this great promise that he would be blessed, that he would be made into a great nation with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So when no baby appears... Sarai and Abram, who become Sarah and Abraham, take matters into their own hands. Sarai offers Hagar, who's her slave girl, to Abram in a sort of kind of surrogate marriage situation. Now, whatever we might think of that practice, and I know what I think of that practice, it was apparently in the culture of the time a perfectly respectable thing to do the outcome of which would be that Hagar would remain as Sarai's slave, but the child would be given to Sarai as her son to treat as her own. And as you can probably imagine, Hagar's feelings about the matter were pretty inconsequential. She was just a slave after all. And although I can't imagine what Abraham and Sarai were going through in the situation they found themselves in, I am, to be honest, really quite disgusted with the way they treat Hagar, and I'm sure I'm not the only one as we read that passage this morning. They treat her like a possession, 
with no regard for her feelings or her mental health or her physical health. Hagar was an Egyptian. She was a foreigner in that land. She was also a woman and she was a slave. Three times oppressed, we might say. And she's taken full advantage of. Abraham and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, play this crucial role in God's blessing of his creation. But there is no doubt whatsoever when we read this passage that they were at least as flawed as the rest of us, at least. So, what becomes of Hagar? Well, as planned by her master and mistress, she falls pregnant. But as it says in verse 4, she began to despise her mistress. I don't know exactly what that means. Lots of the Bible commentators say that um, she started treating Sarai with contempt. She lauded her pregnancy over her. She taunted her with it. But given the situation she'd been forced into, despising Sarai seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? Whatever the situation was exactly, Sarai complains to Abraham, who with no regard for Hagar whatsoever, once again, simply says, she's your slave, do with her what you think best. And apparently what Sarai thinks best is to mistreat Hagar so severely that eventually Hagar runs away in the desert to escape. The situation's got to be pretty desperate and pretty dire, hasn't it? To think that running away alone, apart from your unborn baby, into the desert, where who knows if you'll find food or water or shelter, who knows who might come across you in the desert? Who knows what wild animals you might meet? The situation's got to be pretty desperate to think that's the best solution to this problem. But that's where Hagar finds herself, showing actually that she's not just a victim of this oppression, but also that she can take initiative, take initiative to save herself and potentially her child too. And so when we meet Hagar again, she's at a spring beside the road to Shur. Shur was on the road to Egypt, so we presume that she was trying to get home again. And it's here that it says the angel of the Lord came to her. Paul mentioned the angel of the Lord last week. It's this, um, we won't go into it too much now, but this kind of mysterious figure that appears, particularly in the Old Testament, and especially in moments when someone's in a desperate situation. And it's a bit confusing who this person is, but lots of people think this is a sort of a pre-incarnate. This is Jesus before he's incarnated in, as a baby in Bethlehem. Whatever the situation is, Hagar recognizes this angel of the Lord as the Lord himself. The angel of the Lord meets her and greets her with these words. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Sounds a fairly straightforward question, doesn't it? But actually, already in it, we see a little bit of God's heart for Hagar, his compassion for her, because he calls her by name. I don't know if you noticed when we were reading that passage this morning, but every time Abraham and Sarai talk about Hagar, and we find the same again in Genesis 21 when she appears again, every single time they talk about her, they call her your slave or my slave. But God comes alongside her and calls her by name, Hagar. 
when I was on the uh, way to church this morning, I was listening to the uh, service on Radio 4 because I'm that kind of person. And um, the person on there was talking about a homeless person that they'd met years before um, and then bumped into them and said to them, Hi, Andrew, it's great to see you. And he burst into tears because they knew, because, he, because the lady knew his name. God does that for Hagar in this situation. God doesn't just see my slave or your slave. He sees Hagar and he calls her by name. And what follows that is the most extensive dialogue between God and a woman found anywhere in scripture. A rare interaction with the Lord, which I think even puts Hagar on a par with perhaps Mary, um, the mother of Jesus, maybe even Mary Magdalene in the resurrection garden. She's the first woman in the Bible, one of eight, to be told by God that she was going to have a child, that she was pregnant. Hagar, who's a foreigner, a woman, a slave, triply oppressed, meets with God, or rather is met by God, seen by God. God meets Hagar in her hour of desperation and calls Hagar by name. But then he does something which I think seems quite incongruous after the compassion he's just shown to her, because he tells her to go back to Abram and Sarai. And maybe you have more idea than me, but I don't know what to do with that. I'm not sure I understand that. But what I do know is that when Hagar returns to them, she doesn't return as the same person she left as, because she returns with this amazing promise to cling on to. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. It's not exactly the same, but it's strikingly similar to that promise to Abraham, isn't it? that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Hagar returns, laden with promises that a slave girl could never have hoped for, and with an instruction to name her child, whose own future sounds pretty uncertain, Ishmael, which means God has heard, for God had heard her misery. But the Lord hadn't just heard Hagar, he'd also seen her. Verse 13 says, Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. Hagar, the foreigner, the slave, who for all we might know, might not even have worshipped the same God as Abraham and Sarai. Probably didn't if she was Egyptian. But she encounters God and names him El Roy, the God who sees me. Incidentally, along with being the first um, party in the Bible who has a sort of annunciation experience with God, who's told they're pregnant, and being the woman with the most significant dialogue, most lengthy dialogue with God in Scripture, she's also the first person to be described as seeing God. And this insignificant slave woman is apparently also, and I want to check this out, so if you think I'm wrong, tell me afterwards, the only person in the Bible who gives God a name personally. She names the God who stepped in when nobody else noticed or cared. The God who spoke her name when her master and mistress would not. The God who saw her desperate plight and promised her blessings she could not have imagined. She's a remarkable woman, I think. And she has a remarkable encounter with God. And so um, the theologian Phyllis Tribble says this about Hagar. 
Hagar and her story. Hagar becomes many things to many people. Most especially, all sorts of rejected women find their stories in her. She is the faithful maid exploited, the black woman used by the male and abused by the female of the ruling class, the surrogate mother, the resident alien, the other woman, the runaway youth, the religious fleeing from affliction, the pregnant young woman alone, the expelled wife, the divorced mother with child, the shopping bag lady carrying bread and water, the homeless woman, the indigent relying upon handouts from the power structures, the welfare mother, and the self-effacing female whose own identity shrinks in service to others. So many people, we listed some women there, but so many people, men as well, find something big or small of their story in Hagar's story. But if we conclude this morning simply by thinking about Hagar, then something has gone wrong, because actually that's not what Hagar does. Instead, she points us to God, to El Roy. She doesn't mark the spot where she meets him as being Hagar's well. A reminder of her greatness and her role in this story. Instead, she calls it Bia Lachai Roy, well of the living one who sees me. Well of the living one who sees me. The God who saw her and the God who sees me, the God who sees you, he is the main character in Hagar's story. And that God is the same God that we meet in the person of Jesus in the New Testament, isn't it? Jesus who heals the lepers and the hemorrhaging woman when everyone else had thrown them out of society. Jesus who restores the sight of blind Bartimaeus when everyone tried to, to shut him up. Jesus who heals the man at the pool of Bethesda that no one would help get in the water. Jesus who drives out the demons and gives people their lives back. Jesus who talks with the Samaritan who had to go to the woman, had to go to the well in the middle of the day so that she could avoid other people. Jesus who advocated for tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and other people that we think we're not supposed to like. This is El Roy, the God who sees me, the God who sees you and you and you and you and you who sees the oppressed and the foreigner and the slave and the lonely and the outcast, but who also sees the stressed teacher and the overworked nurse and the tired parent and the leader who doubts that they've got what it takes and the person who doesn't know who they are anymore and the one who doesn't know what they've done to deserve this, who sees the underpaid care worker and the underappreciated refuse collector who sees the one who's moved house or church and school and needs a friend. Each of us can call God El Roy because he is God who sees me. He is God who sees you. But the point isn't just that God always sees or God always knows like some kind of divine Santa who keeps an eye on us from a distance. He sees and knows in order to show compassion, in order to love us, in order to take us up into his arms and say, I'm going to be with you all the way through this. He did that for Hagar, and he offers the same to us too. Tasha, are you happy to come and play for a minute? Tasha's just going to um, play for a minute whilst we take a moment to reflect. Um, 
And during this time, I'm just going to encourage you to do one of three things. Or if you want to do all three, go for it. Feel free if you're, if you're a multitasker. The first thing you might want to do is just take this time to be quiet. To ask God to meet with you today. Maybe you need to know today that God has seen you. If you need to take this time just to be quiet and ask God to make himself known to you, do that. The second thing you might want to do is to think of someone who, as Glyn was saying before, who we, meet, who we might meet this week, who we know God sees them and who needs to know that God sees them. Perhaps say a prayer for them this morning. And the third thing you might want to do is to thank God for being Elroy, to thank God that he sees you today and he's seen you in the past. And if you're willing to, I'd encourage you just to offer that word of thanks, a sentence or two of thanks and praise to God that he's been faithful, that he's seen you in the past and that he sees you again. So as Tasha just plays, if Tasha just plays, as Tasha plays, take a minute to be quiet or to offer a word of thanks out loud. Mm -hmm. 